Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studios of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the state of the Western. Writer, filmmaker, producer, Walter Hill is with us. Welcome. Like we're <laughs> looks like we're shy of one horse. <laughs> you brought two too many. Western has been a sandbox for not only the greatest generation of U.S. filmmakers, but all U.S. films, really, even though it's an international genre. But I want to know what the current state of it is from an expert. Today's subject is one I've been wanting to do since the show started. One of the challenges, one of the obstacles is many of the greatest practitioners of the form are no longer with us. 
but that's about to change today. I tell my students that every film is a documentary. Well, today's guest once said that every film I've done is a Western. So who better to discuss the state of the Western with one of the great custodians and artisans of the form of 50-plus year career. His first spec script in Hollywood was a Western. His first film as a director felt like a Western, hard times. <laughs> At the very least, it had two of the great Western heroes of all time, James Colburn and Charles Bronson. His first official Western as a director was 1980. The Long Riders will get to that. He is one of the co-parents of some of the great genre films of all time, writer-director of The Driver, writer-director of The Warriors, and one of the stowaways on the Nostromo 1979 Alien. He was the producer, one of the writers, and stayed with the franchise until it became cinema and cultural lore. He was contaminated by Westerns at an early age, seeing a stagecoach as a teenager, but he shouldn't feel bad. Many have fallen prey to the genius of John Ford and Duke Wayne. So please welcome to the Modern School Film and to Murmur Radio to talk about the state of the Western writer, director, producer, and still a damn fast gun, the honored Professor Walter Hill. Mr. Hill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for your too kind uh, an introduction, uh, Rob. Thank you, indeed. Thank you for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Any, anything you want, Rob. To be honest with you, all my friends were most geeked about this, as you can imagine. But I want to I wanna keep my feet on the ground. Talk, do you recall seeing Stagecoach at an early age? I think you were pre-teen. Well, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually not old enough to remember when it came out. but uh, that, <laughs> 1939, yes, but who's counting? Right? Uh, that was a little before I was born. And I saw a re-release, I must have been about 11, 10 or 11 years old, of Stagecoach. I remember thinking uh, John Wayne looked quite young here and uh, much younger than I was used to seeing him. But I did see it on the big screen. And the famous, pan, the very, the famous panning shot where you... Uh, find Geronimo on the hill looking down at the stagecoach, which elicited great intake of breath in its initial initial release with the audience, uh, still worked. I must say there was that, oh, you know, <laughs> kind of feeling. Geronimo is a character you would grow to know about 40 years later, but... Um... Well, that was, yeah, in a much, much later and much different approach. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Even that... as a small child, you knew that this film was something different and something vastly more, uh, I wouldn't have used the word at the time, but uh, masterful and of superior achievement. And, uh, you know, Ford knew how to introduce a character, you know, that push in on John Wayne. Very you... famous, sure, yeah, of course. The great filmmakers know how to introduce a character visually, and that's one of the great ones. Hold it! Whoa, steady, ho, ho. Hey, look, it's Ringo. Yeah. Hello, kid. Hello, Curly. Hi, uh, Buck. How's your folks? Oh, just fine, Ringo, except my grandfather came Shut up. Shut up. Didn't expect to see you riding shotgun on this run, Marshal. Going to Lordsburg? I figured you'd be there by this time. No. Lame horse. Well, it looks like you've got another passenger. Yeah. I'll take the Winchester. You may need me in this Winchester, Curly. Saw a ranch house burning last night. You don't understand, kid. 
you're under arrest. Speaking of stagecoach just a little bit, um, do you buy, I guess the answer is always yes, but do you buy the fact that Wells said he saw it, I think, seven or more times before he made Citizen Kane? Do you see any of the DNA in stagecoach and Citizen Kane? Well, the uh, the use of dramatic low-angle shots and seeing ceiling pieces was not not a fashionable thing in most of 1930s filmmaking. Ford did that quite a bit. Well, certainly, uh, he took it to a whole other dimension, but uh, Ford was clearly a master of the craft. I think Wells wanted to study the masters. There was a, a kind of a poetic truth to Ford's films that uh, that Wells understood, I think, better than, certainly better than most, and maybe better than anybody at that time. It's funny, Ford and Wells, their, their greatest films are at heart chamber pieces. You know, Stagecoach is really a chamber piece, um, and in ways Kane is as well. Uh, you know, as James Colburn said in Hard Times, let's get down to cases. Um, what is the current state of the Western? And is there a state of the Western, or is it sort of, oh, right, a Western? What is the current state of the Western? Well, that's a big question. I'm not even sure you're talking to the right fella. You know, the uh, <laughs> there's the old the story of Willie Mays, I think it was in the 54 World Series. Oh, uh, yeah. The over-the-shoulder. Amazing, yeah. Reporters came to him and said, was this your greatest catch? And he said, I don't know. I don't rate them. I catch them. And um, <laughs> I try to make Westerns whenever I can, and I like them for a very long time now. Um uh, I'm not sure I'm expert on the current state of anything, but um, <laughs> it seems to me that obviously the greatest problem is that they've become kind of niche movies at best, and they're not very often, they're just not made very much. They have fallen out of popular favor, at least there's an assumption by those that finance films that they've fallen out of popular favor. There's very few filmmakers that are able to command the kind of budgets that are necessary to make them. And those that get made tend to be uh, uh, deeply revisionist and quite often in in a gimmicky way rather than um, in a way that's trying to say something about current society. Art of the Western, as, as many people have noted, almost always reflects the moment in history when the Western was made, uh, the concerns, the visual approach, even the kind of casting that's done. Cinema lovers still love it, you know, as you, as you know, even if you're, a, as you would say, and I disagree, a reluctant expert or a, a reluctant caretaker, but let's leave that aside. You know, it's one of the great high metaphors of form, sci-fi and Westerns, two sandboxes you've played in a little bit, but has the metaphor of cinema changed or has the audience changed? You know, we can use, we can reduce it to things like a, attention span, um, but what has been the greatest adversary of the Western? And yes, the answer is studios, but what what is it? No, I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't even say that the greatest enemy is the studios. It's just their perception of what's commercial. I mean, the, the, the studios or the financial institutions are simply reflective of what they believe the current wisdom is about what audiences want. And uh, I think there is no question that the decline of the Western won the general audience as, say, opposed to in my parents' days, uh, has, lost their, has lost their connection to the American agrarian past. In the 18th and 19th century and well into the 20th century, 
were we were basically country folk most of the most of the population and uh of course they've moved moved to the city and suburbs and all that kind of business but there was nostalgia for that agrarian past that's now three or four generations gone i think probably so you were long beach before long beach was cool walter <laughs> <laughs> long before <laughs> right right when i was a kid they hit a kind of commercial peak and saturation point. In other words, they were just done to death. I think it was not so much the features, but especially on television. Thirdly, I've always tried to make this point. Um, the Western of all the classic genres is the most subject to parody. Once you begin to parody something, it's it's difficult for larger audiences to take that as seriously as they once did. I'm not blaming Mel Brooks, by the way, for the decline of the Western, but uh, I'm just talking about general attitude. You read my mind. <laughs> I always find in my age, the good news and the bad news are always the same thing. I want to think for a second before we look at your DNA in the Western, you know, about uh, spaghetti Westerns, you know, because cinema lovers will say that that was the most sort of fascinating window of, but there was a glut, as you say. Do you think spaghetti westerns had anything to do with nails in coffins at that time? Uh, you know, again, the good news being the bad news. They, in a sense, make two of the points. Uh, they were, they added to the glut of, in the marketplace. But there was a, a parodic aspect to the spaghetti westerns. You know, mo most of them, are not stories in the way that Westerns that we made were generally stories. They were, they were, they took the high points. <laughs> <laughs> they become a series of just the, you know, they become a series of climaxes and uh, confrontations that have very little to do with certain kinds of narrative problems or development of characters. Uh, they're like opera. I mean, it's been many. Many people have said they're much more like operas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a great English film critic, Philip French. He was a great student of the Western, and, and he said the Italian Westerns, the spaghetti Westerns, weren't real Westerns, that they were something else. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah. Yeah. I've always thought there was more than a glimmer of truth to that. It's a little dismissive, but... Uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fair. It's like saying David Lynch is a filmmaker. Well, David Lynch is an alien, and I mean that in a good way, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so certain things are kind of in their own space, and you know. They're so far out, it doesn't mean that they lack validity or anything. Exactly. Exactly. They're over there rather than being part of a mainstream thing. You know, when Spaghetti Westerns, chief amongst them, maybe Leone, tried to do something anthropological, you know, uh, Good, Bad, the Ugly has a really great line about anti-civil war or anti-war. Uh, they're gutted, you know, the studios gut them. But that's a different conversation for a different day. Speaking with Walter Hill, those are great sequences and people should see the full, like any full movie, should see the full Good, Bad, the Ugly. I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your your DNA. Uh, you know, explicitly, you have a fascinating history with the DGA as a second assistant director and an AD on some of the great films. But you know, I was thinking more of you observing, and correct the record if any of this is wrong, you observing some TV Westerns uh, early on, like Gunsmoke and Wild Wild Well, I worked on it. I was, I was a writer trying to make a living, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, like all writers. 
you uh, you spend time, uh, you know, you spend lonely hours trying to get somebody to pay you for writing. Uh, you spend lonely hours writing, trying to get somebody to pay you for it. And <laughs> yes. um, I, uh, while trying to make a living uh, or, or learning my craft as a writer, I worked in production. I thought it was, you know, hand in glove with my my overall idea of where I was hoping to go with things. And um, I worked on Gunsmoke, for instance. Um, it's where I met a uh, cameraman that I've often used, Lloyd Ahern. He was, I was just passing out the call sheets, but <laughs> I would quite often carry the camera equipment around with Lloyd and uh, lens boxes, etc. Being in the trenches is a great way to learn anything. You know, what, what did you learn? You know, Gunsmoke and I believe Wild Wild West at a point and Bonanza at a point. Did you learn about Western ethos or was it not that simple? I was already sufficiently impressed, I think, with the creative aspects of the Western. I mean, I mean, I didn't really learn a lot passing out call sheets or filling out production reports or anything like that. I like to be. <laughs> I uh, like to be around it, but what what I think the thing that I learned more than anything else was what a kind of uh, world there was of people who made their living out of westerns, took them very seriously. Even at uh, uh, to tell you the truth, I was kind of a smart alley kid, and I took the films of John Ford very seriously, or something like that. I didn't take Gunsmoke very seriously. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I like working on it. Of course, Gunsmoke was always perceived to be the, the flagship of quality in um, television westerns. I, and I think probably in many ways it was. Right. Uh, I took the old radio show, Gunsmoke, much more seriously than I did the, t- the TV show that I worked on. <laughs> Dodge City, in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Do you think this the genre suffers on a smaller screen format? Do you think it's a cinematic, preternaturally cinematic experience? Good question. Uh, certainly, you do sacrifice the great landscapes and all that, which are so much part of, of we'll say, Anthony Mann's westerns, or um, you can't imagine Shane, for instance, without the Grand Tetons in the background. And uh, So, yes, the answer is yes, but it forced uh, stories to have a more particular focus. Uh, uh, they became more town-oriented, I think, um, that inevitably emphasized the law and order aspect of Westerns, the, the problems of the sheriff, the marshal, the whatever, rather than the beating nature back or uh, army problems or, you know, the problems of the frontier. 
the land is the character, as you say, you know, in, in a Western, maybe in a textbook Western, whether it's Monument Valley, you know, you see the movements, you see the tracking movements, you see almost the militaristic movements, you know, Major Dundee, which we'll get to in a second, you know, by someone you know, you know, you need to, not need to, but as you say, you benefit from seeing that. So it's it's extraordinary. Talking with Walter Hill here on Murmur, in, in our mid-moment here, I was thinking about, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or, you know, let me know how, how this brushes off your memory a script you wrote called Lloyd Williams and His Brother. And it seems like that was uh, one of the first public offerings for you as a screenwriter, which was a Western. Why was an early script of yours a Western? Was it simply a world you wanted to be in or just happenstantial? Or was it not early to be called early? Why did you give Westerns a shot as a screenwriter pretty early on in your journey? Well, it was just seemed to me to be a good story. I, I don't really have a good answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, I always say most of us only know three or four stories. So, and it was, it was one of them that uh, it was the Lloyd Williams script is very, very much anticipatory, shall we say, of hard times, which I did with Charlie Bronson and Jimmy Coburn. It's interesting. Westerns do. I've heard you talk about Old Testament storytelling. They really do bring you closer to story because there's nothing there, you know, space, not to, not to dredge up an old movie poster for you, but <laughs> space, no one could hear you scream, but, uh, <laughs> you know, space is so quintessential and to sci-fi. Do you buy that? You know, this idea of, I tell all my young filmmakers make a Western. They look at me like I'm crazy, but it gets them to deal with space, you know, th- open spaces, things that don't exist. Do you buy that as a as a gateway drug, a Western? Oh, absolutely. Um, for absolutely. a filmmaker, although I, I think maybe this gets underemphasized. Uh, when we say Western, there is uh, in our secular age we don't look at it this way very often, but uh, there is a Old Testament aspect. I mean, the, the storytelling tends to be reminiscent of. Uh, the earliest kinds of literature and uh, forms of literature. And people uh, tend to ask you about creating 19th century reality. But I always say, no, it's, it's really much more like you're walking around in the Old Testament and telling those kinds of stories. Stories I heard when I was a kid. I was sent off to church, and um, my mother's uh, vain attempts to civilize me and... Uh, <laughs> And I now, of course, look back at it as uh, I, I wish I'd even paid better attention because the stories are great. Mm. Agnostically looking at it, they're parables, you know, and it, it, it defies belief system. It, it's just they're, they're parables. And that is a great uh, set of building blocks, you know, um, for a storyteller. And you, you've told more than two or three, uh, and I'll prove that to you in, in the next few moments. Um, but I want to talk about us uh, being with Walter Hill in, in our midsection here. Talk about, you had a pretty cool, I want to use the word uh, because you were a colleague of his, but for the film fans, and a cool apprenticeship, a cool training wheels moment working with Sam Peckinpah, uh, if you'll oblige me for a second. Sure. A lot of people forget about Sam, how many of his early films, really his debut was a Western. The Deadly Companions uh, was his debut, a Western. Ride the High Country, which to me is arguably the greatest Western. Major Dundee, we talked about the, a little film called The Wild Bunch. Um, had you seen, before you started working with Sam on The Getaway, had you seen those films? Uh, I had seen Ride the High Country, which... Uh... I was enormously uh, 
fond of. I thought it was a wonderful film. And I first met him, I think it was just after he had done Major Dundee. He described it, I believe, as in disgrace. And uh, he had uh, had a rough rough journey on that one. And uh, um, it was before he was able to put the Wild Bunch together and uh, make one of the most remarkable comebacks, I think. Uh, I had actually met him several times before we started working together. And uh, he had a place out in Malibu. And I used to hang out in Malibu, a bar out, of the, out in Malibu called The Raft. And uh, he and a lot of stuntmen, picture guys, used to hang out there. And uh, <clears throat> Lee Marvin was one of the champions. <laughs> Champions out there. Can I can I just stop you for that? Sure. Can I just stop you there? Like that's when men were men. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting goosebumps. I I kind of want to go back to that place. So I mean, they were serious drinkers. I was half ass kid. Uh, I met him there and we talked. He he was very pleased that I uh, I knew uh, ride the high country. Then we got a chance to work together when I was writing the getaway, which was an unusual situation. He came into it later than I did. I'd been hired to write the screenplay, well, actually to co-write the screenplay with Peter Bogdanovich, who uh, was going to direct it. And uh, then back then Sam came in, and uh, we worked together for a number of weeks, and um, it was a very, very good experience, and then he made the film. Sam was very happy. It was actually the biggest hit Sam ever had, and it got me a chance to uh, direct. So, you know, I have very... Very warm feelings about it. <laughs> Before we leave Peckinpah and on to your first Western, filmmakers and film lovers tend to romanticize Sam, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. I actually think I like that. I like when we romanticize filmmakers. But what was the takeaway? You know, this this guy with the tattoos of the West and slow motion, and and you know, you've tipped your hat to Sam in other films. Um, but what what was what was the takeaway for you from Peckinpah in terms of? you know, being on sets and, you know, just kind of shooting and shoot shoot first, ask questions later. Was there any takeaway or was it all sort of new and just part of the job? Well, kind of hard to describe. I I happened to get along with him pretty well, uh, very well, really. Uh, however, I, I would never, it would be dishonest to say that he wasn't uh, at times a very difficult person for a lot of the people that he worked with. And um, he was a very big drinker. He was an alcoholic. He became very alcoholic. And um, I always say that The Getaway, I don't say it's, I certainly don't say it's the best film he ever did. I think it's a good one. But I do think it's probably the last film he did that he was in full, just fully in command of his craft and his art. Aspects of his social life got um, got the best of him mm. uh, and to a degree. Afterwards, I know a lot of people are very fond of Pat Garrett. Uh, they're more fond of the picture than I am. I think everything he did had some merit. I'm, I'm not. I'm just talking about it on a very high crucible. But the his utter commitment to filmmaking was very impressive. I mean, you know, he used to, he used to live on the lot. He would uh, take a trade, put a trailer over outside of the editorial building. That's where he'd, he'd work from um, 
the time he woke up in the morning till late at night, um, have food brought in. I mean, he did that week after week. Uh, he made a total commitment of his life and at great sacrifice to uh, many aspects of his personal life. It was either very impressive or cautionary, and, uh, depending, I guess, on one's approach. You've worked with a few brawlers in your life. You know, this is a conversation. This is for the book I hope you're writing, Walter. I think all these things, um, you know, there's so much of them are were done in confidence. You know, we had private moments and uh, it's a kind of, uh, I, I, I've never cooperated. And there's, I've been asked, I don't know how many times they do these films about Steve uh, McQueen. Right. Uh, or, or Sam, as far as that goes. And I've never... Uh, never agreed to do interviews and all that about them because just, I don't know, to me it's a kind of a violation of um, confidence, I think. But I, I, I also know that's not the fashion, so. Oh, son of a bitch! Get those horses up! Why the hell's going... Asshole, come, bastard. What in the hell's the matter with you, old man? Leave him alone! He's gonna get us all killed. I'm gonna get rid of him. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're gonna stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We're finished. All of us. Mount up. With Walter Hill here on Murmur, let's talk a little bit about The Long Riders. Uh, and I, I draw us to that because that really was your first Western. Um, and it was a fucking ambitious one, man. Uh, multiple sets of brothers, uh, the Keeches, the Carradines, the Chris Guests, uh, which is amazing. Um, what was it like doing the first Western? Did you think... Now I got to make one, or now I want to make one. Were you itching to do one, and was it, it was it more challenging than you suspected doing a Western at that time? Number one, I very much wanted to do a Western, God knows. Um, and my last film, The Warriors, had done well, so I was in a position that uh, we could just barely get it on, but we did get it on. It had special problems. I mean, I was the, one of the biggest things I was aware of was that I was about the 25th director to try to make a movie about the James Younger gang. <laughs> and there have been so many made. And, and, we, and I had the opportunity of these brothers, which a lot of people, by the way, told me, ah, Christ, you don't want to do that movie. You know, these brothers are all, you're going to get out there, they're all going to hate each other, and uh, it's going to be a mess, and uh, you're going to be stuck in the middle. The truth is, the brothers all got along very well. Yeah, they were very good with each other. There was professional jealousy, that kind of thing. Didn't really happen on the movie at all. And uh, it was one of the more enjoyable shoots that I've ever had. Uh, uh, maybe the most, to tell you the truth. And it was a chance to you know, work with a lot of good people and be around the horses and all <laughs> that kind of business. But I wanted to make uh, something that was different, you know, I wanted to make a green western uh, as opposed to the sagebrush. It was better to do it just in terms of uh, kind of pastiche of, I mean, just to have enough stitching material that that it made sense, but um, not try to develop it in the more traditional way. I didn't think you could unless you were going to have 
an 11-hour movie. I would have seen that. I would have seen an 11-hour Walter Hill film. But that's more about me than you. I don't think United Artists thought that was a good idea. <laughs> no, that's why I don't work for them. You know, I was thinking you said at the time, or after in hindsight, that there was an there's an idyllic quality to making a Western. And I find that a little fascinating and ironic because, you know, you're creating idolatry. You're creating the idyllic. But Westerns, you know, you're on location, lodgings are always trickier, uh, everything seems always trickier because you're so remote and you're so detached. Fight me off there, though. Is it like a typical film crucible, to use your words, production crucible? Or were you at peace with the unique artifacts of making a Western on location? You do. You're, you're quite right. You're, you're usually off in the middle of nowhere, so the lodgings and all that. Uh, tend to be on the spare side. I I quite like that. I mean, I think that uh, to trade off your personal co- it's not like you have to live in hell, by the way, but <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, not the Beverly Hills Hotel or something. And uh, <laughs> yes. Westerns, I think the hardest movies to make are the big city movies, you know, when you're out there doing a cop movie on the streets and everything, because you don't own the streets. Right. You have, right. You're always fighting for control uh, to make your shots and Westerns, you're out there in some beautiful place usually, and you own the place, whatever direction you want to shoot in. Fine. There it is. Turn the trucks around and let's go. Turning the trucks around in the middle of, uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco or something is, um, okay. <laughs> we'll call you in a few hours. And, uh, <laughs> Scorsese once said filming in New York, King of Comedy, was like being a large dinosaur with a really large tail. Every time you moved around, you're going to hit something and fuck it up really badly. In our last couple of thoughts with Walter Hill, honored to be here, and, and I'm fighting going through his life's work with him today, and maybe that's a reason to do this again. Um because he's back in the West now. Uh, I was thinking about Godard, and I was thinking about Chaplin this morning. I'm not a very interesting guy. I think about these things. Um, you know, Godard once said, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. Um, Chaplin once said, all you need is a policeman and a park. You don't have to be so cute, but what are the rudiments of a Western? Guns, honestly, you know, whether it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which again is a revisionist Western, they still have guns. What do you need to make a Western? Well, I guess it's uh, a guy, a girl, and a gun, but um, you don't always need the girl, I guess. She's optional, yes. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I, I say that realizing that um, I've lost half the audience here, but... Uh, <laughs> That's all right. We'll get him it back. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I mean, I certainly don't mean that. I could hear my daughter saying, Dad, but uh, the, uh, so... Did we answer that? Yeah, you know, I was I was waiting for a badge, but you know, there's always this weird sense of law and order. You know, I was watching The Last Man Standing again. Well, I, I would also say about this masculine thing, you know, it they tend to be about, and certainly mine do, the incredible messes that uh, the masculine sensibility makes. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and the incredible messes that the masculine sensibilities get one into. And they, in that sense try to be a critique of that idea. I'm a great believer in the civilizing influence of women. You're also into a level of accuracy in the sense that those Western governances weren't governed by women. You didn't have women sheriffs. You know, you did, uh, you know, we don't know for certain, but documentation, you know, it was a male dominated world for worse. You well, know? It was, yeah. you know, I mean, you would, 
uh, you would sacrifice kind of narrative credibility uh, with most of these stories if um, you know if they weren't told more from a masculine point of view, I guess you'd say. And Sam Raimi did The Quick and the Dead, and you have Sharon Stone, a really badass character, but that falls under revisionist. So I, I, well, that was, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed yeah. that film. I'm a I great fan of Sam's. I, I enjoyed the I film. Too. But it's yeah. a kind of parody of a parody. And, it's, uh, it's a fantasy, yes. It's a, fa- it's yeah, a fantasy and, space. You know, before we get to our speed round goodbye, I want to talk a little bit about 1979. You know, two of your films as as boring as this may feel or sound, have significant anniversaries this year. Uh, one you directed, uh, one you produced and really gave birth to in many iterations, and in no particular order, The Warriors and Alien. And I was thinking about those films as Westerns. So make the case or not for The Warriors and Alien as Westerns. I think that's, uh, if I may say this, Rob, I think that's your job, not mine. But <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I understand. I need a job, so yeah. You can certainly draw a parallel between the Warriors and Run of the Arrow or something like that. They tend to be simple narratives that uh, have complications uh, through other means, shall we say. Stay behind me. I'm gonna take him out to the sand. What about you? You ready? Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, Sigourney Weaver can be the sheriff of my town any day. I just had dinner with Sigourney but two weeks ago, I think it was. How's she doing, by the way? She's doing great. She's in uh, Jim's new uh, multi-part trilogy uh, yes. film. Yes, Avatar. She's, she's very high on all that, and she was quite complimentary about this um, spoken word thing that I've just done, the, the Cowboy Iliad, and um, we're old friends. She was in the she was in the last movie I shot. Uh. She's a powerhouse. I actually just had Yafet Koto on the show, uh, and he's chugging along and still wants a Live and Let Die remake, uh, where he comes back and kills Bond, and still may think <laughs> Alien is a documentary. But anyway, I want to do a speed round. And I love Yafet. I want to do a speed round with you before we say goodbye. Um, I'm going to throw out some names and just give me a, w- a word or two on their place in this canon lowercase c. You know, I was thinking of uh, Kira Kurosawa, uh, obviously, as you know, was a huge fan of Ford. And and one day they asked uh, Akira, what do you think of John Ford's Westerns? He said, Mr. Ford makes Westerns, I make Easterns. (laughs) I want to do a a quick speed round of names, just a thought or two of where they exist in your mind, in the Western mind. Uh, First up is, to me, an unsung genius, Bud Boddicker. What did you think of Bud, Bud's legacy? Last few years, um, he and I got together a number of times. He gave me, he autographed his book for me. Oh, cool. He's quite a character, quite a guy. He sadly had a long interruption in his career, and it cost him very, very heavily. 
when he really should have been moving into his peak years, he disappeared into the wilds of Mexico and um, didn't emerge for 10 or 12 years, I think it was. And by then, trying to piece his career back together was difficult. But he was quite a guy. He was very smooth, uh, uh, genial, complimentary, but very tough guy. At the same time, you he was a great horseman, you know. He was great. At, he had been a, a terrific athlete in his youth. He must have been well into his 70s by the time I knew him. And um, uh, he still carried himself with a great deal of physical grace and um, aplomb. Why did he retreat to Mexico, did you know? Well, he, was, he had this deep and abiding interest in um, bullfighting. Mm. And uh, I think he kind of got lost down there in Mexican life, Mexican culture, and uh, I don't think it's a secret Mexican alcohol. So um, he had a, a lot of years in the wilderness, shall we say. Yeah. Emotional wilderness. Right. No offense to Mexico. But. No, 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 no. Well, you know, no, no one is immune to certain vices. Anthony Mann, what do you think of Anthony Mann's legacy as a Western auteur? Anthony Mann was certainly a wonderful filmmaker. He was a master outdoor shooting. I don't think anybody got more out of landscape than Anthony Mann. Ford's approach to was more pictorial. Um, Mann's is, uh, use of the landscape is very visceral, and he ties the characters into it. Yeah. Uh, Mann, Mann was, a, I think, probably the first great master of the, what became the tool of the Western, which was the Chapman Crane. The old-timers tended to make movies off sticks. And when you say on sticks, you mean the camera on a tripod, yeah. I think that the kind of psychological approach that man quite often got into his films is a bit dated. It was a tough fit even then. Uh, he made a lot of good movies. He was an entertainer. He was a very good filmmaker. He died like most directors want to die, on the set. <laughs> right in the middle. Wow. Uh, let's talk about John Sturgis for a second because we do forget, yet yeah, we do know The Magnificent Seven, but I was thinking of one of my favorites, Bad Day at Black Rock, which is a pre-Walter Hill, Walter Hill film, you know, with, with Spencer Tracy. What about John? Was he an auteur? That's about as kind as it gets. I uh, I thank you very much for that. Uh, Sturgis was, uh, I met John any number of times. Um, he had an office over at the old Goldwyn lot when I was working over there as an assistant. Very tall guy with these big horn rim glasses. Uh, strong personality, strong opinions. Unapologetic about the action genre. Let's get them in, let's shoot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. You hear that? We're trapped! All 40 of us, by these three. Or is it four? They couldn't afford to hire more than that. We come cheaper by the bunch. Five! Even five wouldn't give us too much trouble. There won't be any trouble if you ride on. Ride on? I'm going into the hills for the winter. Where am I going to get the food for my men? Buy it or grow it. Or maybe even work for it. Seven. Somehow I don't think you've solved my problem. Solving your problems isn't our line. We deal in lead, friend. 
Let's move on to, uh, I believe, one of your favorites. They're all favorites, but this seems to be a man, especially uh, Raoul Walsh, who I think we forget about. Um, well, he is one of my favorites. I, I always say that uh, he made so many good, I mean, in the first place, he made, I don't know what, 120 movies or something like that. A lot staggering, of them yeah. Are, are wonderful, and not all of them are, but, the, uh, but Walsh, I believe, to me, is, um, a perfect practitioner of what seems to me to be one of the greatest American virtues, the disguised storytelling, disguising the art. And uh, I can, I wish I could live up to it. But you, when you watch uh, Walsh's movies, um, every, every shot advances the story. I think, for instance, Colorado Territory, which is not a movie that most people uh, remember, is one of the finest Westerns ever made. Joel McRae is so good at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a remake of High Sierra, and the uh, as good as High Sierra was with Bogart, uh, Colorado Territory is better. I encourage everybody to run out and take a look at Colorado Territory. I think they will now. And you know, Raoul was also an early proponent of John Wayne before Jack Ford. Before John Ford, uh, he was a, a big believer in John Wayne. A couple other names uh, before the last question, and, and some of these will defy genre. But you know, Howard Hawks. Let's talk about Hawks just in terms of his Western ethos. I mean, we could talk about Hawks as a great filmmaker, but do you think a Hawksian Western is a thing, or uh, maybe not so much? Well, I, I think. Uh, I mean, he was certainly one of the great masters, and. His personal imprint on films is so so clear and holds up so well. He's been particularly influential on Quentin, uh, Quentin Tarantino's work, both the Italian westerns and the Hawksian approach. Um, Hawks is difficult to talk about without, you know, th- there doesn't seem at first glance a lot that separates his work from uh, just traditional filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, one of the uh, films of Hawks that really most of the most of the scholars tended to devalue is now perceived to be one of the uh, very great highlights is Red River. That's my favorite Hawks movie. Yeah, that's my favorite Hawks movie. Uh, yeah, the popularity of Red River has really to do mostly with uh, the repeated screenings on television. You know, it's like Out of the Past, the Mitchum's Jock Turner film, really became the classic through through repeated viewings on television. Really interesting, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't say they were lost movies, but they were not revered in the same. I mean, when you talk about the ten greatest noir films, nobody would make a list where Out of the Past isn't prominent on the list. 25, 30 years ago, that's not true. Its screenplay structure to me is the marvel. Uh, you know, again, I almost don't think of it like a Western in that sense. I always think of The Lady Vanishes, Hitchcock, and Red River Hawks as two really fascinating structure lessons for screenwriters. And you write about Tarantino and Hawks, obviously Rio Bravo was a favorite of his. Well, particularly Rio Bravo, yeah, not, not so much Red River, but Rio Bravo. But, you know, and Red River is subject to, as it should be, constant debate. Isn't the film inevitably a confrontation, a death confrontation between these, this father and son? Uh, how do you feel about the ending? Did, did Hawk screw up his own movie? If there's any chance at all, we'll get you hurry to Abilene. Cherry was right. You're soft. You should have let him kill me, because I'm going to kill you. 
I'll catch up with you. I don't know when, but I'll catch up. Every time you turn around, expect to see me. There's one time you'll turn around and I'll be there. I'm kidding you, Matt. Bad for box office, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we end our list, the stylists, the uber stylists, spaghetti western stylist, the father of the genre, uh, Sergio Leone as a western auteur. Uh, where do you come down on Sergio? No, I'm a great admirer. I think not to be as silly, uh, if nothing else, and he is quite a bit beyond. He's one of the most imitated filmmakers. Filmmakers of achievement, Buñuel, for instance, whose greatness is beyond denying. Nobody can really copy. The unique quality of his films is beyond imitation. And then there are other filmmakers whose greatness, one of the aspects of their greatness, is how much that they become influential. Kurosawa is certainly like that. Ford's like that. And Leone is very, uh, for instance, of all the Italian filmmakers of the 1960s, or all the European filmmakers of the 1960s. Who is the, finally the most influential of, of all of them? Sergio Leone. He has vastly had a greater influence on the world cinema than anybody from the French New Wave. Or, or Fellini. Or Fellini. You know, or, or, or Antonioni. Antonioni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's and, interesting. Uh, That's very interesting. Uh, yeah. At the same time, I think there's something very difficult to talk about with Leone's films, difficult in this sense. I don't think that there's any any other great filmmaker, at least that I can think of, that is so utterly unimaginable without the contribution of his um, composer, Morricone. That's not true of anybody else. And I, as I say, it's not true of Hawks or Ford. Or I think the closest thing that you could probably say is Spielberg and John Williams. Mm. But Leone is unimaginable without Morricone. Morricone would score first. Leone used to shoot to the music. I tell you, I have... No idea how the hell one would do it, but um, uh, <laughs> but I, um, you know, what can I say? He made it work. question. Clint Eastwood. Now, Eastwood, we know the icon, but what about the filmmaker Eastwood? Terrific filmmaker. Uh, maybe maybe uh, he's certainly one of America's four or five best. Uh, has a real real gift for the medium, real gift for storytelling. He's done some marvelous films. He's a much more serious filmmaker than I think most people ever seem to give him credit for. But that's because he's he's unique in that he's also a movie star. Yeah, yeah. There's not many of those. Uh, Warren Beatty is a movie star and a filmmaker, but you know Warren has worked so little. Whereas Clint, I say Clint like he's my personal friend or something. I've only, <laughs> met, him, I've only met him a few times, but I'm 
I'm a great admirer. The last name is Jack Ford by birth, but John Wayne called him Pappy. But most of us know him as John Ford. If you could distill down John Ford, if you could distill it down, what is your magnetism to John Ford as a creator? Well, what can I say? You know, you've kind of picked me off first here. Um, There's a poetic truth to um, the films. His films are better than the films are, if you know what I mean. It, there, there's a there's a feeling that they engender that's much stronger than the uh, storylines or or sometimes even the characters and it's it's the manner of the storytelling it's the belief in the storytelling not 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 even so much the, even the story it's the belief in the power of the approach to the storytelling and of course you have the feeling that he was he had this great personal vision that was clear only to himself there was a i was watching a bit of the horse soldiers last night it was on which is not one of his stronger films and uh, but the gestures within it the woman holds her hand up to her forehead to it goes much beyond shielding yourself from the sun you know and getting a better look and Ford constantly uses this imagery female strength and uh, female solidity in film after film after film after film and it obviously meant something to him uh, emotionally that is really kind of beyond our powers of description so Ford becomes fascinating I'm, I'm really much more of a Hawksian and <laughs> that uh, I kind of respond much more to Hawks's sense of humor and um, ethical values, and um, but there's a, a a powerful poetic truth to Ford. Somebody once said to me, we were talking about Tolstoy, about Tolstoy Dostoevsky. You know, the ultimate argument for Tolstoy is he contains Dostoevsky. Ford contains Hawks. Wow. Hawks is more special and, in a sense, easier to describe and appreciate. But there's a pantheism or something there's a hugeness of scope to ford that's much greater than anything in hawks i think i say that as a hawksian so well that's high praise (laughs) you're back in the sandbox professor hill uh you were i don't like how you call your westerns historical westerns and i mean that respectfully because i think your films transcend but you're back in the sandbox Walter Hill makes his debut at 77 with the Cowboy Iliad, spoken word. I love when people make their debuts in their 70s. That's just a beautiful phrase. What made you want to get back in the sandbox, and why with Westerns? We were having dinner, and I said, whatever happened to those records that I used to hear when I was a kid, and Walter Brennan or John Wayne or somebody would do tell a story. And does does anybody even do that kind of thing anymore? Well, a few drinks later, it was a challenge. And, um, <laughs> and I started writing this thing up, and um, I thought, I started thinking about what is there about stories like this that fascinate us? The kind of sitting around a campfire kind of storytelling. The big fight we had, we had a constant fight, was whether or not I would do the narration. I wanted to hire a professional actor, and... Uh, I just thought that this doing a, a spoken word thing, uh, Western would be perfect. And also, you know, to be perfectly honest, going back to when I was a kid, I was uh, homebound, shall we say, an awful lot when I was I was an asthmatic and uh, had several other physical problems and didn't didn't go to school every year. And 
I used to listen to the radio a lot. Uh, the Cowboy Elliot is somewhat an homage in my approach to it. So I, I wanted to try to recapture that that kind of feeling, but I also wanted to position it as literature. What, what is the literary tradition, and and why does it exist in that tradition? Um, so all that in 25 minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> I always say the writing's okay. Uh, the music's great, and the narrator's kind of hammy. But um, see if we can get Sam Elliott or somebody. <laughs> We've been talking a little bit about subtextually the lamentations of the West. You know, I was thinking of the actors you've worked with and and have known McQueen and Bronson, Colburn, Warren Oates. You know, people who are still with us like Nulty and Hackman and Bobby Duvall. What is still in it for us in the Western? You know, is it still the parable that rings true? What drew you back? You you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, Professor Hill, with all due respect. What what pulled the trigger for you? There's a few things that I'm trying to get together. I'd like to do another couple of movies. Yeah. And I don't feel like sitting around just reading magazines here in the house. Um, I'm not out there pushing it either. And uh, again, I, I like the model of somewhat contained, rather special story, uh, although writing is painful. I still like to kind of express myself a bit. Uh, I think, you know, people almost always identify me as a director, but I'm really as much a writer. I always have been as much as a director. And um, First of all, you said you're semi-retired. Come on, that's bullshit, right? I mean, you're obviously not. Are you retired, semi-retired? Come on, Mr. Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not for hire. One other bit of honesty. You said possible lamentations, not having been able to direct as many Westerns as you wanted. Is that true? I mean, do you feel like you left a few on the table? It's certainly true. Uh, It's just too hard to get them financed. Very difficult to get them financed. I've got one right now called... uh, Dead for a dollar, and uh, Christoph Waltz and I are trying to uh, put together. But you know, finding finance is not easy. I'd heard that. <laughs> you know, when you're ready, not to write the screed about you know whipping towels with uh, Charlie Bronson. Um, <laughs> I'm ready to listen. You know, I think people would love to hear you talk about your movies from you know soup to nuts. So if I can ever be of help, uh, Professor Hill, just call on me. Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you indeed. Truth be told, we could have marinated on anything today, but I do think you are one of the true gatekeepers of the Western form. Well, thank you, Rob. You've been way too kind, and I do appreciate it. And uh, obviously, some of the stuff got through to you, and uh, it makes an old man happy. I hate to say this, but I am a fan, and and (laughs) long may you keep creating, man. And if I can be of help, let me know. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. Okay. End of story. Now what's it all about? What if any lessons are to be drawn? Obviously we can say whiskey and pistols are a bad mix and that attempts for personal justice are often an excuse for violence. Those are easy judgments. But the dark side within us all has its own logic. Sure, we reach for the stars and sometimes, truth be told, we reach for the bullet with a blade.
I want to thank Walter Hill for going back west with us today here on Murmur. I want to thank you for going back west with us here today on Murmur. But you can go back west, east, north, south, anytime with us on Murmur. Website is murmurradio.com. Listen to the show, download the show, subscribe to the show, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. If you have a subject you would like me to handle on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest, and who knows where we'll go. We always keep our compass handy, just so we can throw it away. See ya.